Welcome to Sacred Intersections Podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Jill. I'm an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA with training in pastoral care and counseling. And I'm Paula. I'm a licensed counselor, a counseling professor, and a person of Christian faith. So as we're getting started, we just want to say that Sacred Intersections Podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to make you think like us. We just want to make you think. That is our agenda. So neither one of us speaks on behalf of the Presbyterian Church USA or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives, nor do we speak on behalf of all mental health care professionals and practitioners, people of faith, Jesus followers, white women, Americans, or people who love cheesecake. Cheesecake. I love me some cheesecake. It's my birthday dessert every year. And I get really upset when cheesecake is denied to me. Yeah. Who denies you cheesecake? So, little story. Uh, when my spouse and I got married at our wedding reception, I wanted the dessert to be cheesecake. And the pastry chef, baker person, did not think that that was an appropriate wedding dessert. What? It's Who, who doesn't think that's not... What? I guess your baker did not. <laughs> Evidently, think it was there's one person in the world who doesn't think that cheesecake is an appropriate wedding dessert. But uh, I love it, and I appreciate it when I have it, and I try to take every opportunity to have it. You know, I found this out about you. I can't remember how I discovered it, but it was on a trip when I was helping you chaperone a youth trip yes! for the church before yes. we were friends. When I was trying to become your friend. and It was like one of our first friend dates. And I remember thinking this one's a keeper because you brought me cheesecake. <laughs> I had to go shop for the youth for the youth dinner. Yes. And I decided I had to come back from oh. the grocery store to the little place cabin with cheesecake. It was the beginning of a beautiful thing. Yes. We knew it was meant to be. Wonderful. So cheesecake is awesome. And back to the podcast. Although we could talk about cheesecake a long time. But we got bigger stuff to talk about today. Um, but we also just want to be sure you know Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion, spirituality, mental health, and all the ways that they intersect. Because Jill and I were already having these kinds of conversations, and we decided to record them and share them with you. So we're just glad you're here with us and along for the journey, even if you're traveling different roads or driving different vehicles than we are. We're super excited for today's episode for a number of reasons, but one of which is that we're adding another sponsor. This episode <laughs> is sponsored by the Center for Healing Religious Harm. I'm, I may have a little bit of something to do with that. You know, I may. I just need to tell you that I'm going to gush a little bit because there are so many amazing stories that have been shared with us and so many times that we have come across people who have been living under the impression that their experience is the only experience out there or that they're alone and don't know that they've been experiencing religious harm or don't know that there's other possibilities out there. And uh, I know that a center for healing religious harm is needed, and I'm just so grateful that you've started that hmm. here and made that a possibility for people. Well, thank you, Jill. It has been it has been a joy for me the last few months to be able to to work more directly with people. So, so 
I decided, yes, let's be an official sponsor along with Anchor. Awesome. (laughs) Well, if you want to know more about the Center for Healing Religious Harm, we'll put some links in the show notes for everybody. Cool. So we got a topic today. Just in case it isn't clear from the title, we're talking about women in ministry. And if this is the first time you're ever listening to Sacred Intersections podcast, you probably could maybe infer that this is a topic that we care about. A smidge. Just a little. A little bit. I think that you might have a little bit of investment in this. I do as well, but I think you've got a little extra personal investment here. Yeah. So this is an episode that's been in the uh, in the hopper for a while. We've we've hemmed and hawed about when the right time is to do it. And Jill, we gonna talk it. about women in the ministry? Not yet. Jill, yeah. we gonna talk about women in the ministry? So uh, I just want to be transparent and vulnerable with everybody. Uh, this is a huge part of my identity and a huge part of who I am. And uh, I don't necessarily, I'm, I pray that this episode is not about me. You'll certainly hear a lot of my experiences, and I hope to be able to share some experiences of my colleagues, both as women in ministry here in America and some experiences of women in ministry abroad. Um, this is not a subject that I come to with an objective point of view. Clearly, I have feelings about the validity of women in ministry. If I didn't think it was valid for women to be in ministry, I'm in the wrong profession, but we're sure. That would kind of perhaps <laughs> require some career counseling. Yeah. So so it's an episode that means a lot to me and a top, or I should say it's a topic that means a lot to me. I have lots of feelings about it and I hope that there's opportunity for people to bring their experiences and their presumptions and understanding and questions and that we do just what we set out to do every episode, which is to make you think. Yeah. And, you know, I think we both had a journey with Sacred Intersections with our podcast about how we show up and which parts of ourself we're yeah. willing to put out there and which parts we want to be a little more protective of. And and this certainly is one that we knew was going to ask a lot of you, that we knew was we're going to put you and your career decisions and your experiences front and center. And I think those are really important for the parts that you're willing to share and the parts that you need to set boundaries on as well. Um, but I think I think that that experience, your experience is going to be helpful to, for people to hear. And I think we can also just share a lot of generalizing experiences too. But I just appreciate anything, your willingness to, to dive in because this is one that I know is going to ask a lot of you. Well, thanks. It's a topic that's important to me for sure, for sure. So maybe just start with an overview and, you know, I thought we might start with kind of hearing a little bit about your story, the the abbreviated version for both of us, because I know we could both talk a long yeah. time, but your experiences with it, mine is going to be a little different angle. And, um, but do you want to just jump in and share, like, how did you, how did you wind up being a woman in the ministry? Sure. Absolutely. I'm going to take a step back before I enter the story and just say, for people who may be coming to this topic out of nowhere or who might not have experience with this topic, you may not know or realize that there is some conflict around the validity of women in ministry. Here in America, there are mainline denominations of Christianity that um, vocally, readily profess that women are not to be in leadership. There are passages of scripture that we believe have been twisted 
Uh, I, I'm going to say I believe have been twisted. Forgive I, me for attempting could, to... If you speak for me and I disagree, you know I'll speak up. Yes. So feel free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's passages of scripture that we're going to unpack a little bit later in the episode that have uh, implications or have been used in terms of how, how women serve in ministry, how women are called by God. Um, so we're speaking from a place and from an, I am speaking from a place and from an experience of a, a person who identifies as female, a person who is assigned female at birth, who is white, who has been navigating a mainline denomination in the United States. Um, so my own particular journey I grew up in a church very similar to the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church in America. Their roots are in the Netherlands. They're the Dutch people. The Presbyterians are the Scottish people. So it's really a whole bunch of white people. <laughs> Just slightly, very slightly different true, kinds. True, true. Um But I'll say for me personally, I grew up just outside of New York City, which is a a pretty diverse place in the world. Uh, And I actually didn't encounter a woman in leadership in the church until I got to college. I went to a a small Christian college. And in leadership at all. At all. Because that's something I think, like, there may be some listeners, some of our roadies, who don't understand that when we talk about women in ministry, there are some denominations that will not ordain women and let them hold ministerial positions or staff positions. And then there are places who will not let them serve as deacons or elders or whatever the leadership is. And then there are churches that will not let them teach a Sunday school class unless it's children or other women. Yeah. And you may be going to get to that, but that's... Yeah, exactly. No, that's that's. But you had not seen a woman woman in any of those positions. So I had... uh, I I remember there being women who ran the nursery at my church. I remember that my youth pastor growing up, his wife was really involved, but... Jim was my youth pastor. I loved his wife, love, still do love his wife, Amy. Just did it, did not encounter women in leadership until I got to college. And I went to a small Christian college, uh, Hope College in Southwest Michigan. And that was the first time that I saw a woman who had was a chaplain, who had the letters REV, which stands for Reverend, right before her name. And I had not considered religion as a vocation until I was partway through college. Uh, But when I started taking religion classes, really started to fall in love with things like the Hebrew language. I thought about the fact that the church that I grew up in and the youth group that I was a part of was the best part of my childhood and my upbringing. I grew up going to a Christian camp in the summers and... So my faith was a huge part of my upbringing, and it just had not occurred to me that it could be a vocation until I was in college, and and saw this. Where did what did you think you were going to do? Just out of curiosity, <laughs> in college. I wanted. This is the joke that I use in all of my interviews. So I wanted to be a costume designer on Broadway. <laughs> I do. I, now that you say that, I do remember that about you. That's really different. Yeah. Yeah. So the I'm joke, sure there would have been some ministry there. The but. joke that I use in uh, in all of my interviews is I was planning on being a theater major with an emphasis in costume design, and I got worried about how I was going to support myself. So I changed <laughs> my major to religion because that's such a moneymaker. <laughs> that's usually. And then I, like, charm all the interview committees, and they think I'm, oh, that's so funny. She's she's cute. Yeah. 
So, uh, so yeah, so college is the first time I, after college, I started working as what I like to call a baby youth director because this was before I was 25 years old. So my brain wasn't fully formed yet. And I worked in the church, loved it, decided to go to graduate school. When I was in graduate school, I had a number of different in kinds seminary. of- Yes, like, seminary. Uh, I, I, I went to a seminary, so a graduate school where the only- People on campus were pursuing a higher religious education, and I got a Master of Divinity. And in the process of getting that degree, I had lots of different ministerial internships and experiences. I worked in a small church. I worked at a very large, nationally known camp and conference center here in North Carolina that many people probably could figure out what that is. Um I worked in a hospital as a chaplain. I had experiences working in retirement communities and uh, all kinds of different ministries. And uh, my favorite experience was working with this teeny tiny amazing church under the mentorship of a truly incredible woman to whom I owe so, so much of who I am and my identity. And I really felt like that was God's uh, God worked on me for a while, but my experience with the Gayton Kirk Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia, was the experience that said this is what I, this is what God's inviting me to do with my life. So, uh, so overall, as of um, about a month ago, I've been working in churches and doing some kind of ministry for 22 years, which is not a short amount of time. That's a whole childhood. And that's a, whole, that's a whole lifetime. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I've been doing ministry longer than I haven't been. Mm. Like when you get to that milestone mm-hmm. where you've been doing something longer than you haven't been doing it. So uh, I have my pastoral identity has changed a lot. I have a lot of feelings and I feel like I've had some, I was going to say, I feel like I've had some unique experiences, but every time I share these unique experiences with other women in ministry, they can tell me another story. So there are definitely some obstacles. There are people whom I love, who I think love me the best way that they can, who don't think that women should be in ministry. And I love them and I think that they love me the best that they can. And that's not easy. Uh, but clearly, I feel like God called me to ministry. I think if I were to tell my call story, I might have even shared this on the podcast already. Um, when I was in my undergraduate, I was standing in a, the middle of winter. It was nine o'clock at night, and we were standing in what we called the Pine Grove of our uh, of our campus. And the professor, who was the chaplain at the campus, was teaching a class on uh, just engagement in ministry. I think it was called, and he was teaching us Hebrew, and he taught us the Hebrew, the most basic Hebrew commandment, which comes from Deuteronomy 6. And so he had us walk all over campus. And this is Southwest Michigan in February. So we were walking through feet of snow. It was freezing cold. And he taught us the Hebrew words for Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one, which in Hebrew is Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And that passage is very important to me because that was the moment when I thought, if I can't do this, I don't want to do anything else. Yeah. I mean, I can tell, I imagine you've told that story so many times and it's still, you're still tearing up talking about it. I love it. 
I love it. That's beautiful. That's really cool. Yeah. I've heard your, I've heard parts of your story, but it's really cool to hear it all. I mean, and obviously there's a lot more to it, but just to hear it kind of all laid out. Sure. How you ended up being my pastor, um, which, which you are. And you are the main pastor in the church where you serve, the church where I'm a member now. And, um, and like, you're the... I was going to say head honcho, but I guess that's not really a ministry <laughs> term. So I would uh, I would call myself a solo pastor. I'm the happen to be the only full time employee of the church where I serve, and I work with a great team of people. Some of whom identify as female, some of whom identify as male, and I have served in other roles as a youth director, as an associate pastor, as a community organizer. So there's lots of different versions of of ministry. Uh, my perspective that I bring is women who are in vocational ministry, though I would make the argument that you, my dear friend, are also a woman in ministry because of the Aww. type of work that you do. So there's different different things that we're talking about, women in what I would call lay leadership. So that are in the Presbyterian church, we would say women that are elected to be elders or deacons or to be part of the leadership of the church, but who might not get paid for it. They ha- They also have a job that gives them a paycheck and yes. things like so that. So our church has no limitations on gender. Any gender can serve in any role, is eligible to serve in any role. And you had to navigate, and and I imagine this was a huge part of your choice, obviously, winding up in a denomination that would fully endorse and ordain you and yes. fully affirm your call. Yes. Yeah. Hasn't always been like that. So there is actually still women alive today who were... Um, the first, I think the first three women ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA are still alive. Wow. So I want to say they're in their 80s. It has not been. So if they were ordained, it's probably, I should check this. I want to say in the last 50 to 60 years. Yeah. Which is not a long time. Not a long time at all. Uh, So I've shared a lot about my story you bring a personal perspective to this as well. Is is now the time you want to share that, or you want to save that for later? Um, I think, I mean, roadies, as you're listening, we we are going to get into the theology of this. We're going to get into some of the experiences. I think as we cover this topic, we want to talk about the harm that's done both by the exclusion of women in by some churches or denominations, and then the harm that's been done by women who are in those positions, who have special things that they have to deal with that men don't have to think about in the role of ministers. Um, and as always, I think it is important that you hear the hear some of the bias or the experience that we're coming with. So, so I certainly don't have the same investment that you do in this topic, but I do feel very invested in it. So I grew up, I think I've shared a little bit of this on the podcast in a teeny tiny town in the mountains, um, Western North Carolina, grew up literally across the street from the church. And I also did not see a woman in the pulpit as a minister on staff, but there were women in leadership in my church. Like there were women who were deacons in the seventies and eighties. And like, and apparently that maybe was a little bit controversial, but not really. I don't know. I mean, I was a child, but it was a teeny tiny church and everybody knew each other. Sure. And, um, so it was normalized for me from a very early age that a woman could be at least a deacon. And I had youth ministers who were women um, who, but the the main pastor was always a man. 
And I just never questioned it, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting because y'all know I like to question things. <laughs> <laughs> Until I went to college as well. And then having been raised in the Baptist church, you know, I've shared a lot about how I think Baptists are sometimes put, all put under the same umbrella when that's not really fair because there's just a lot of variety and different types of Baptists, and there's supposed to be a lot of autonomy within local churches within that. But at the time I was coming into college, there was a lot of political things happening in the Southern Baptist Convention and women in ministry, and being clear on the exclusion of that was becoming just a little more vocal, becoming a little like a, a conversation like, oh, people are talking about this. Oh, how do I feel about this? I've never had to think about this. So I went to college, and most of my friend group in college was actually in the Baptist Student Union, and most of my friends were women who were majoring in religion and who were planning to go into ministry. And so then at a very influential developmental stage in my life, that was a normal part of what I was seeing and didn't really understand the controversy <laughs> around it a lot sure. and the politi- the, all, the poli- all the politics around it either. Um, you know, some of my very best friends were grad were graduating from undergrad and going directly on to seminary with that plan. And I, as after I graduated, I did not go straight into my master's in counseling program. I worked for a publishing company for a while, and and I won't name the particular one, but it was one that was also had some politics going on around women in leadership, and I was not in a role, I was like a copy editor, basically, was not in a role that that really impacted me. But I saw a little bit of working at a Christian publishing company and just a little bit of how definitely there were different opportunities for men and women in this religious organization, not which was considered a ministry by the people who worked there. Okay. Um, And I didn't work there very long. And then I left and went back to get my master's in counseling, and y'all know the rest of the story (laughs) from there. But kind of, and so from then on, every church I've attended has at least had women on staff in a ministry role. Um, This is the first church, your church, our our church, is the first one where a woman has been in the pulpit almost every Sunday in a speaking role. Um, But so I will say the, the time that this became crystal clear to me how important this topic was, was when I met my husband. Um, Interesting. So you know the story. I think we shared this story with you early on. On like our first date. <laughs> our first double dates with, with our husbands. And we we met and we were early on in our relationship, we were talking on the phone and he had just been accepted to a seminary. And he wasn't necessarily wanting to go into the ministry. He just really loves to learn. He just wanted to, he was getting a master's in Christian apologetics. And all I knew about apologetics was that C.S. Lewis was an apologist. And that I love C.S. Lewis. Yes. So he was going to get a master. And hi, babe, we'll maybe have you on to tell the story yourself. But right now I'm telling (laughs) it for you. So I remember clearly in my living room having this conversation with him. And he was really excited about it. And I started Googling this seminary just to see kind of what it was. And it was not a seminary that seemed like it would ordain women out of the seminary. Okay. And I just remember almost like my heart breaking in two because it was this kind of automatic like, oh, I thought he was the one. Oh, no. And, And if he believes this, he can't be the one because 
my oh. like <laughs> that's like heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same I know. time. And so like, but I just like, but he's he's so awesome, and I really oh, I mean, we had not been dating very long, and our relationship moved pretty quickly anyway. But I just remember being just just devastated by this idea that he might not because at the you know at the time I and I still do obviously have many friends who are women in the ministry and you know one of my very best friends from college hi julie who was the matron of honor in my wedding you know was serving as a pastor in a church and i would just like if my husband and julie can't get along and like if he can't support her then this is not going to work like this is just not going to work and so so i remember i got really weird on the phone (laughs) and just kind of like didn't know how to handle it and wound up getting off the phone in a weird way and then, and he knew something was up and I called him back and I said, I just want you to know, like, that wasn't about you. I'm just, and he's like, what is going on? <laughs> and so I just told him, I said, I was looking up your seminary and do you not believe that women can be ordained? And he said, I don't know. I've never thought about it, <laughs> which is a very, I think many men listening to this are maybe in that same place. You know, that's just a part of privilege of not having to think about it. Right. Not having to be always seeing yourself represented in the pulpit, never having to wonder if this is a career pathway for you, maybe never having encountered a woman in leadership. And he had not. And I, you know, had not in the same position as yours at that point either. But he was just like, well, let me Look into it. Let me investigate it. Interesting. <laughs> and I was so Wait, I don't want to lose you. I got to come up with something on this. All right. See, I mean, I already really like your spouse, but I like him even more. And it was such a lesson for me of like, okay, don't be so dramatic, Paula. Maybe don't just run away at the first sign of danger. Because that was one of the things that truly made me fall even more in love with him was his openness to like... Let me figure this out. Just because it's the only thing I've experienced doesn't mean it's right. And he did what he did does and did, did a deep dive theologically in, um, is that a word? Yeah. Theologically. Theologically. Okay. Theologically Absolutely. and wound up talking to the pastor of the church. He wound up joining my church. And um, and when, we'll get into that more with the theology part. But that was the time when I went like, oh, this is really important to me. And it's really important that the people that are in my life feel that way. So he, he obviously is also a member of our church. And, yes, yes. And Serves is, in leadership. Is very glad of our to church. be, yes. to have you for his pastor. So, so he did truly, like, it was not for me. It was a very intentional, long, drawn-out process that was not completely settled until after we were married, even. But, hmm. um, so that's been some of, some of my journey. I guess that's enough for us to yeah. move on. Well, and one of the things that I often will say to people, either when we're talking about the subject of women in ministry or when we're talking about another issue, I will often say, if you find yourself in a religious community where you agree 100% all of the time with absolutely everything, unless you invented that religious community yourself... There's probably some sort of... <laughs> I forget you can um, do that, but we did have an episode right? on cults recently. Refer back so. to the cults episode on that one. But um, so there's probably something that you maybe are giving up. And everybody has their own deal breakers. Like, not speaking on behalf of the Presbyterian Church here, but I don't agree with absolutely everything that the Presbyterian Church USA has in their polity and the way that things are handled and things like that. But I believe enough of it that that's 
that's where I have chosen to practice vocational ministry. So it's, I, I love that. I love that women in ministry is a deal breaker for you. That warms my heart. <laughs> it warms my heart. So, and I love that it wound up being a deal that didn't have to be broken. Cause well, and that it sounds like it was such a beautiful growing part of your relationship too, that your spouse clearly saw this was important to you and did the work to, to understand things. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we both agreed, like, okay, let's go back and revisit this and make sure the way we're thinking about it is okay. And I nodded my head, and I'm like, I've already done that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but okay, let's do that. Love it. <laughs> because I, love I it. truly had, I felt like, done the work at that point. So, yeah, um, yeah. so speaking of the work, did I cut you off? No, I just, the only th- the thing that makes this, I think, an important topic is there were all, I've talked about my dissertation study on just defining yes, religious yes, yes, abuse, yes. and all of my participants wound up being women, and several of them described their treatment due to their gender as the religious abuse that they experienced. So, so that's another way that it's on my radar is for clients and the research I do and how it's showing up in those ways too. Absolutely. Well, and and to offer a point of clarity, I feel like what we're talking about in this particular episode is women who serve in vocational ministry and the question about women in vocational ministry and not necessarily about how women in generally are treated in ministry settings. Does that does that clarification make sense? So, if so can you say it again? I I just want to be sure. So, we this particular episode is coming from a place that's talking about women in vocational ministry. Yes, who this is their job. This is this is our job, this is our vocation, and not necessarily how women are treated in a ministry setting. So like a woman who comes to church and is turned away from that church because of because they're because they're a woman. Right. Because Let's go ahead and say it. We all know it. Like, women experience discrimination and have experiences of marginalization in every system in the world. And so we could talk a lot about how women in general are treated in the church. And we are focusing this episode specifically on women who are employed as ministers in the church. Right. In a church. A Christian church. And women in leadership. So in addition to vocational ministry, maybe women who are in leadership as Elders or deacons or uh, on the church councils and and in those positions of leadership as well. And maybe just to oversimplify it, we're addressing the harm that happens when women are told that they are not allowed to serve in leadership positions, that their call from God is definitely not that. Yeah. And the harm that can happen. So perfect Transition to pivot to the religion road and to talk about some of the theology behind yeah, this. Yeah, where the heck does this come from, Jill? So, Scripture is the Word of God. We the the church where we worship. We I believe that Scripture is the authoritative Word of God. It is uh, written by men. It was written at a particular time in a particular place. And the word of God can be interpreted throughout the ages. And there are layers to that interpretation. So, And this might really oversimplify that. I know that you've, you've got this training in that. I would throw out the, the one phrase that stuck with my husband when he was doing his research on this was when our pastor, so shout out to Dr. Bill Ireland at the time, said there are parts of scripture that were for that time and there's parts of scripture that are for all time. And the Holy Spirit helps us discern 
where that shows up. Yeah, absolutely. That just so beautifully said. So there are the we're we're sorting through layers of what was culturally acceptable and appropriate during uh, the you know fifth century BCE during the first century and the ministry of Christ and the years after that. And there are things written in scripture in the Hebrew Bible, or what, what Christians call the Old Testament, as well as in the gospel and the new in the gospels and the rest of the New Testament about women and their interactions. So there are things that uh, there are portions of scripture that say things like women should be silent in church. Bless. <laughs> Bless. And I mean, it, it does say it. It does. It does say it does, that phrase specifically. It does absolutely say that. And there are, there are scriptures that talk about the way women are to interact with men in society. There are parts of the, the Hebrew code and the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible that talk about how women are to be treated and there are oftentimes when they're treated more like property than they are as individuals who can stand on their own. Um, in, in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, you hear the call to care for the widow and the orphan. So not having parents is just as bad as not having a man. Bless. I have feelings about that. <laughs> if you hear the judgment in your voice, good listening. Uh, so, there's, so there's lots of scriptures that talk about that and people will bring out the ways that that scripture should be interpreted and applied today and applied today in this in 2022 so the person or the writings that get picked apart and examined most are writings that have been attributed to the apostle paul and i have a very complicated relationship with the apostle paul there are times when I would like to take some scissors to my Bibles and just snip out the parts that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is a beloved child of God, just made life infinitely more complicated for me and for my female colleagues in ministry. But you don't snip those out because you can wrestle with them yes. and integrate them in a way that feels led by your faith. Yes. And so uh, there are lots of ways that different theologians over time have wrestled with these texts and talked about things. So you'll, you'll hear theologians take Paul's words where it says uh, that women should be silent in church and they should be respectful of the men around them. And, and, and that's the main one. Yes. Like I, you mentioned several others, and I know it's a thread that runs throughout Scripture, um, but that's the main one that I that my understanding of these systems that say women should not be in ministry are point to that one is it in Timothy. Yes. Okay. So it is it is Paul's letter to Timothy sprinkled throughout mainly first Timothy and in, in and around the second chapter. Uh, so so some theologians will hold that up also with another text that's attributed to Paul, an epistle that's attributed to Paul or a letter that says there is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, and talks about the ways in which we're all part of God's family. And, and so that's Galatians. Yes. Oh, look at what a good little 
biblical scholar See? I am at the moment. Woman in ministry, <laughs> my friends. Yeah. So there are some theologians who will say that when we read certain letters that the Apostle Paul is believed to have written, that we're reading someone else's mail. It was an actual letter to someone. Exactly, yeah. And like, you might know more about this than I do, but isn't it like a felony to read other people, open other people's mail in the country? I think the federal government um, takes mail very seriously. There you go. Mail, M-A-I-L. They also take mail, M-A-L-E, very seriously. <laughs> Look at you. Pun on our podcast, haha. So, so there's lots of, of different ways to, to pick apart the, yeah. the scriptures, that's what's there. Because My, those two were written, same person, or attributed, and seem in direct contradiction yeah. of them. Well, and it's, it's, again, it's the layers of what it is that's going on in the community. So you can learn so much about what was happening. So we have one of the stories that we have in the Gospels. I will say it's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels is when Jesus gets real mad and goes into the temple and turns over some tables because there were some things happening that shouldn't be happening. The temple was being treated like a marketplace and things like that. Righteous anger is a thing. Some theologians have considered the possibility that what was going on in that marketplace is that women were bartering with one another that were taking part of that marketplace mentality in the Hmm. temple. And the call to be silent was trying to reinforce the righteous anger that Jesus put forth to say, this isn't a place for you to be doing this right now. Hmm. This is this, what you're doing is to be done in a different place and at a different time. So there's there's just so many ways to can pick. Can I can I I've heard something too. Can yeah, you please, say if you please. so one of the ways I've heard that women should keep silent the context that was given around that is that this was the first time women were invited to engage in worship and church in this way. And so they had a lot of questions. This mm-hmm. was kind of all new. And yes. were you going to get there? Sorry. No, I, that's but, okay. No, it's uh, I remember a, a person who I admired saying that this was uh, the Apostle Paul's way of trying to keep down uppity women who were trying to learn too much because they were asking too many questions. See, I, the, the description I've heard is a little different than that, that it is that women, because they were in church and learning, and that actually speaks to like they were invited in yeah. to be educated, but they kind of took over because they had so much they had their learning curve was so much more. And so it was a way of like, okay, we can't do all of this right now. You know, maybe there's other places that you can go learn from at home the things that, you know, your husband already knows. And I don't that might be a stretch. I can't even remember where yeah, I heard that theory. That's but so it's interesting. Um, but to me that lends a little credence of like that says women were in these spaces. Right. And right. we're speaking up. Yes. And and there was some reason why they were being told in this particular church that Timothy went to or was delivering the letter to or something like that. He was writing specifically to this church system that maybe had problems with too many women talking. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, too many smart women in one place and you're in trouble. That is that is horrifying for some people. Yeah. So the thing that I go back to when it comes to the theology is back to a philosophy and a theology of biblical interpretation. So I take my cues in the interpretation and the authority of scripture from the 
theologian I identify as Augustine, who is a little problematic himself. Because he's, because everyone's human. Also a beloved child of God. But one of the things Augustine says is when you are interpreting scripture, you have always got to interpret scripture through the lens of love. Every interpretation, any interpretation that you bring out of scripture has to communicate God's love for the world, God's love for us as humanity, God's love for creation in general. And so anything that is going to contradict that love, anything that is exclusionary, anytime a group is excluded, that's when it becomes problematic. And so the Apostle Paul excludes more than just women. There are other bodies and demographics that the Apostle Paul will exclude. There are other groups that are excluded in the Hebrew Bible. Everybody that's not Jewish, for example. Uh, so what, what Augustine says is God is inclusive, God is love, and that is the most important thing. So when I am wrestling with these texts, when I'm trying to figure out how I hold intention this document that I believe is the living word of God with the way that I feel the Holy Spirit has called me to this job, my dream job, doing what I love, doing what I believe I was created to do, I wrestle with them in such a way that there is some way that Timothy and Paul were trying to work together communi- to communicate love to that particular community. Mm-hmm. And because I was not alive when it was written, because I don't know enough and haven't done the archaeological research or the historical or theological research to get more of that context, I'm, I'm missing out on that. Mm-hmm. But I cannot believe to have categorized God or limited God in such a way to say that God cannot speak to whomever God chooses, whether they identify as male or female or non-binary or anything else. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to pull apart there. But even just looking at the literal words of those two scriptures that are used on both sides, I guess, if we want to even make it a a conflict kind of um, dynamic that it just seems pretty obvious to me that the con- that the discussion of neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, you know, those kind of things is a generalized statement. And the other was speaking to a specific system. And so, um, and again, like the quote from my pastor, old former pastor that was, um, you know, some things are for that time, some things are for all time, and the Holy Spirit can lead you in in that interpretation. I think there's there is some. Re- I understand, I understand why people cling to that, and why people, even though they may not agree with it wholeheartedly, they still kind of like. But the Bible says this, and I gotta look at this. Sure. And the Bible says this, and I think we also just it's very apparent when we see how Jesus treated women, all the women yes. that he encountered during his time on Earth. Yes. Yes. And that that one of the um, professors in seminary who I had, who, who is a, a wonderful theologian, um, she would talk about how we try not to throw the baby out with the bathwater when we, when we encounter these things. And 
and that we can learn a lot even from things with which we disagree. Like everyone has a hierarchy to their spirituality. There are parts of scripture that are more important than others for every human on the planet. There were parts of scripture that were more important to Jesus than others, I would like to say. <laughs> because he quoted right. some and there didn't were, quote everything else. Exactly. Like Jesus was a wonderful, incredible scholar and knew enough about the Levitical code, but that's not what he read when he unfurled the scroll in the temple. So as Christians, we hold the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, with higher authority than we do the rest of Scripture, because those are the stories that are telling us about Jesus. Yeah. And that's, that's imp- you know, we hold the New Testament in a different light than we hold the Hebrew Bible yeah. or the Old Testament. So everyone is taking a, a hierarchy to their scripture. And I also want to say, I still wrestle with this. I've been doing ministry for 22 years and I still wrestle with this text. And not just when I have to spend 22 bajillion hours on the phone with a beloved child of God who just can't wrap their mind around the fact that, yes, I'm a woman and yes, I'm in charge here. And Yes, you can talk to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm not in charge here, but still. <laughs> Yeah. So there's just, there's so many layers. And so there's not that, you all know, my favorite thing to talk about when we're on the religion road is proof texting. And I don't necessarily want to say that this is a, a scripture that is proof texted because it's, it's, it's taken out of its context, but it's also the context isn't understood as well. Mm-hmm. So this is a, is a text that people use and choose to be their their deal breaker just like you had your deal breaker with your spouse and you're in the process of developing your relationship for some people this is their deal breaker so it's interesting to me how people when you talk about proof texting which pieces they choose to pull out and focus on and ground their belief system in sure and how many if you were to follow every little thing in scripture you know, it would be paralyzing almost. It would be hard to function in the world if you truly dug into what you could eat and where you could go and who you could interact with. And Right. Yeah. There's a really beautiful clip. I'll, I will put this in the show notes. I think you all have um, learned about my great love for the television show The West Wing. Uh, there is a really fabulous scene where the president, who's played by Martin Sheen, encounters... A, uh, a very staunchly conservative religious radio host. And they uh, get into, I guess they don't get into a theological ba- debate, but President Bartlett strolls into the room and just schools her on religious... I was not expecting it to be a her. Religious law. Yeah, it's a female, which we'll talk about the ways in which females maybe don't do each other as many favors as they could. Well, there but. is a certain, there's a term called internalized misogyny yeah. or internalized sexism mm, that yeah, we yeah. don't even necessarily realize. Yeah, them. yeah. I think the point I'm trying to get across is that there's a hierarchy and a prioritizing to the way that we interpret scriptures. Some are more important than others. And I don't, I don't love this phrase, but what hill are you going to die on? Like, yeah. there's a better way of and, saying that. you know, people are going to be mad that you just said there are some that are more important than others. Oh, sure. 
Everything and I say. <laughs> some, someone's added every episode. As a woman in ministry, <laughs> I will say, like, everything I, when you say people are going to be mad that I said that. Like, that's a daily that's, I live with that every single day. Gotcha. And I kind of love it. <laughs> for good or for ill. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So those are the main scriptures and the main theology about where this idea that women cannot be in the ministry and leadership positions come from and some of the ways to address it. Sure. You know, there's a direct contradiction from Paul to what Paul said. There's the evidence of Jesus in scripture, you know, inviting, you know, in the Mary and Martha story and saying, you may sit here and learn in the same way. You don't have to be serving me. You can be equal in this teaching that I'm doing in this moment. Yes. Um, so many women that he encountered and fully humanized and fully affirmed. Yes. And yet all of his disciples were men. Well, on that point, I would say that we have evidence in more than just one gospel where women are put in an apostolic, in the role of an apostle. Um, in the Gospel of John, the Samaritan woman at the well with whom Jesus converses is believed to be one of the first evangelists who goes and tells everyone, come and see this man who has told me everything I've ever done, who knows me better than I know myself. And those words, come and see, are a repetition of the words that Jesus says to his disciples when he's calling his disciples to drop their nets, come and see. So she is a woman who's believed to have an important role. Martha and Mary of Magdala, again, really important roles in many, many gospels. Women are the first to come to Jesus, the first to proclaim that Jesus has risen from the dead. So is there a female name that's listed as one of the 12 apostles, disciples of Jesus? No. Let's recall that this is God's word written by men. Yes. And that has a that has an impact, the fact that it was written by men, again, during a particular culture at a particular time. We certainly know. That's so interesting because, okay, I didn't think you were going to blow my mind on this. I thought <laughs> I had thought through everything. But, like, I was thinking it makes sense that Jesus would have 12 men who were the official <clears throat> official leadership because of the context of that time, and that's what would have been acceptable. And, you know, they killed Jesus anyway, but they probably would have killed him a lot sooner if he had been elevating women to that status. Like, that just would not have flown. Like, he would... It, and But to think that there may have been women... Oh, absolutely. ...traveling with him yes. and serving and doing the same things that all the 12 disciples were doing, and that's just not recorded. Yes, absolutely. One of the, there's there's lots of evidence. There's archaeological evidence that there were, there were women that were part of that community. There's linguistic evidence. So nerd alert, here we're getting into fun stuff. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I love to talk about is how dear sweet Martha gets such a bad rap for being too womany and worrying about things that she shouldn't be worrying about. When in actuality, when we break down the Greek language that's there, uh, the word that's used to describe what Martha is doing is the word for deacon, diaconia. So she was serving. She was 
ministering. She was serving in ministry. She wasn't like, she wasn't standing at the stove making some stuff. So anytime there's a picture, like the little Sunday school pictures that you color where, you know, sweet Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet with all doe-eyed and everything like that. And Martha's like in the kitchen with pots and pans. (laughs) And I'm like, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Like that's, I, 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 Martha is one who I always seek to defend. And culturally in the history of the church, like women are just not taken seriously. So think to yourselves, dear roadies, how many women are actually called a prostitute or a sex worker by the text that you're reading? I will give you a hint. It's less than five. So Mary Magdalene, not a prostitute. The Samaritan woman at the well, not a prostitute. Like, we, we that's just the way the culture has interpreted, like, we got to put a woman in the role and 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 put her in a way that we can understand. So if and Jesus just, is in ministry with women, it has to be a sinful woman who can be made an example of and not mm. a woman who can be raised up as a leader. And so scripture does use that term. You're saying, or it does not. Scripture uses the term prostitute, but not for Mary Magdalene and not for the Samaritan woman at the well. Interesting. Okay. Not for either one of those women. Every time that Mary Magdalene comes up in the lectionary or when I have an opportunity to preach about Mary Magdalene, I think you might have even been sitting in the church when I have have made (laughs) the congregation repeat after me, Mary Magdalene is not a prostitute. She's not. She's not. I look forward to that happening again. (laughs) I look forward to the next opportunity for that. Yeah. So Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the mental health implications of 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 exclusion. How how does this theology cause religious harm? Yeah. Well, you know, we said early on that I think the harm happens along two different roads. And sometimes the first road goes into it. But there is the harm of... Telling women they cannot assume this role. Exclusion. The the exclusion. Mm -hmm. There is the lack of representation for women to even realize this could be a pathway for them. Um, There is a denial of a call that the woman feels of and just kind of the not being able to enter the world. And so so we'll talk about that. And then there's the lack of privilege that women experience once if they do enter the field. There's experiences you have to deal with regularly that no man in ministry has to deal with. And so, so there's both of those and there's harm that happens, I think, along both of those roads. And so, you know, the exclusionary one, just marginalization is always dehumanizing. Absolutely. You know, anytime you exclude someone or, or push someone to the margins or tell them that you are, can't be a part of us in this way, that is saying you are less than. Yes. And that is, and when we add the the theology over this of you are not hearing God correctly, mm. you know, that, that's, that's gaslighting, you know, yes. kind of on, is, at the highest such a existential of level it. of saying like, you didn't hear what you think you heard and you're crazy for thinking you heard that yes. because that's not truth. There's a manipulation in someone's call. And so, you know, there's just, there's so much damage that can happen from that questioning of themselves, questioning of someone's faith, questioning of um, the people around them, having to choose 
my family or my call, having to choose my church or my call. You know, one of my dear friends wanted to be, um, who is a woman, wanted to be ordained in her home church, which would not ordain her. And so there was, again, this place where she grew up that was rejecting her, and then her family wound up leaving that church. So there's a grieving around that. And we've talked about how just the complicated nature when you experience harm in a system, deciding whether to stay in that system or go in that system. But when you are rejected by that system, how, um, how... dehumanizing, how it can make you question the call, how you feel like a problem. Yeah. You feel like I'm creating this, all this drama when it's not really drama, but you feel like you're creating it. That seemed like that struck a nerve. Well, I just, I think one of the things that hits home for me is I think even in communities that are well-meaning and seeking to keep people as a part of their community will use it sort of as a rules prioritized over people. Like, I'm sure you're very gifted and I'm sure you would make a wonderful leader, but our rules state that we don't ordain women. And so a well-meaning pastor might say that to to a woman who feels called to ministry or leadership or or who, who feels like God's telling her something that she wants other people to hear and but I, I'm sorry, that's the rule, and, and that's I more important. I don't make the rules, and and that's more important. Like the yeah. the ability to to pass the buck on to which which maybe they see themselves as I want to validate your gifts, but I'm sorry, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I can't do this. That's still prioritizing a rule over a person, and. To jump back to theology, putting a limit on God, because you're saying that's who God can speak to and who God can't speak to, which I don't think we have that ability. You mean we're not God? No, we're not God. God, just so you know, <laughs> let's be clear. I don't, I was saying that to be funny, but then I heard it come out of my mouth and I didn't want to say that. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, that rules prioritized over people is something we talk about a lot on the podcast. That's one of the themes that came up in, in my research of people feeling like their safety, their calling, their humanity was less important than this rule that people felt like. They had to follow, even when it might not make sense. And and I think that's also a good point about anytime there's discrimination or there's marginalization, there's the intention and then there's the impact. And someone's intention may not be malicious. I do think there's some people, men, who have malicious intent around sure, this sure. that are trying to maintain power that truly... Um, have ideas about women being less human and less um, in, less important in the eyes of God and less able to contribute anything. I do believe there is some conscious malicious intent. And then I do think there's a lot of people like the one you described that kind of like, I, you know, I don't have a problem with it, but I'm really genuinely trying to follow God and what I've been taught about God, what I've been taught about scripture, and um, for whatever reason have not done the litigation of the scripture the way that we've done it or have done that and have come to a different conclusion sure. and are and truly have good intent and maybe even are conflicted and feel heartbroken yeah. by where they feel like their own you know really digging in has led them but that there's still harm 
yeah. that comes out of that, even though that's not someone's intent to right. harm. They're like, I'm really not trying to harm you. I'm just trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes the religious harm comes from the systemic issues. So I'll speak from the perspective of the Presbyterian Church USA. We have a very complicated system of polity and there's Robert's Rules of Order and we have a Book of Order and a Constitution and there's all kinds of rules for who can speak when and how they can speak and if you have voice and vote and all kinds of things. And that can be paralyzing. It can be paralyzing and it can be used. It can be interpreted. It can be misinterpreted and used in ways to make it easier for some people to speak and not as easy for others to speak. And making a change in an established system is hard. So I know I will I will say change is hard. What? What what? (laughs) I will say one of the things that I think I I continue to struggle with is uh, I do not see myself as um, as marginalized. Oh, interesting. I, I would not I would not consider that part of my identity. I'm so glad to hear that. I feel like I have to deal with the patriarchy far more than I should, and um, but you and, don't feel marginalized by that. But I I I am cautious with that word because I know that in my role as a white woman. You have a great deal of privilege. There is a ton of privilege. And while I might experience some marginalization, it is nothing compared to my siblings of color, um, to, to, to siblings who identify as non-binary, to trans women, um, that that's a that's another degree of marginalization. And maybe I need to think differently about that. Like it's something that I still wrestle with. Like in, in all of the ways in which we talk about this scripture, I'm still wrestling with it and still mm-hmm. trying to figure out. Well, and you've, I mean, you have made it in, obviously, 22 years. You have, even though people may have been attempting to marginalize you, and I definitely hear and respect what you're saying about not about being respectful of that word and other experience of marginalization. And I think we can recognize that and then not compare them saying that, you know, it still happens. And you've made it in, and not to say that life is always rosy for you. We're going to hear lots of ways that it's (laughs) not. But there are still many systems where that very intentional marginalization is like you are you be the women are being pushed out. Yes. Like yes. still intentionally pushed out and told, no, you may not come in to this seminary. No, you may not come into this pulpit. No, you may not come into this leadership position. You may go work with the babies and you may teach a women's Bible study. Yeah. And yeah. that's all you may do. Yeah. Um so I think I love that you that that's not part of your experience that comes to your the first part of your mind and that it's still happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and when I think about mental, like in in thinking about mental health, I think about the, the religious harm and the damage to the mental health of women who are seeking to serve in, in ministry, whether in leadership or vocational ministry. And I think about the religious harm that I've experienced and, and, and the things that I deal with like yesterday, it took me 10 minutes to convince somebody on the phone that they could talk to me because they just wasn't wasn't computing that the person who happened to answer the phone was is also the pastor and has a, you know, well, alto you, you or a soprano type voice all the time. Oh, at, weekly, at least. That, at least. And, and usually, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but usually they go with, can I speak to the pastor? You are speaking to the pastor. 
no, can I speak to the main pastor? You are speaking to the main pastor. You're the pastor? Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. you deal with that regularly. Yes. Yes. I do. I do. And, uh, you know, it's uh, my stories my colleagues have shared stem from all kinds of things where they're serving in leadership and they're the church body that they serve um, will take something that they've said and go ask another pastor and say, this is what this is what our pastor just said. Is this true? Back, like they get fact checked. They, they get fact checked or verified. Um, I can't tell you how many times uh, when someone meets my spouse and I together, they assume mm. that Andrew is the pastor, that Andrew is the one who went to seminary. Um, Didn't that happen to you recently when you gave, when you did a sermon at another location here in town, mm-hmm. and as you were leaving, a man made a joke about your husband writing your sermon for you? Yes. Yes, that did happen. Yeah, so. you're marginalized, Jill. I was <laughs> people. You're people try to people right. try to marginalize. Well, you. it's just you know there's there is there is a there is an anxiety. There's a managing. Of course, I have to measure my words in a way that people who identify as male might not have to measure their words in such a way. Uh, I. I have a deep love for each and every congregation and religious community that I have served. It is very rare when I'm serving in a congregation where there are as many comments about a male pastor's appearance as there are about a female pastor's appearance. So back in the before times when you would have receiving lines and uh, the pastor would stand at the door to the church and as people were leaving would shake all their hands, you're... You're getting some feedback from your sermon. You know, that was a nice sermon or something like that. Or I really like that worship service. Or it's good to see you today. Most men aren't getting, wow, look at your shoes. Or I noticed you cut your hair. Or look how pretty your stole Mm. is. Which isn't to say that that doesn't happen in some communities. But I will say, I love it when people talk to me about the content of what I've said. And not about the fact that. I forgot to put my black shoes on and I accidentally left my leopard print ones on. <laughs> Look well, at those shoes. And that's another, like, not malicious intent. Right. Trying to make small talk, trying to connect, but they would never connect in that way with a man. Sure. Most people. Well, and it's and like the, we're in award season with all of the, you know, well, not really because they're not having a lot of awards TV, but it's like how they ask every female actress or person, actress who identifies as female, what they're wearing and not about, you know, the content of their acting preparation. And and that doesn't happen to yeah. people who identify as male. Well, and we can cut this out if you don't want to talk about this, but I seem to remember that you... Like you just have, you have to protect your body in the receiving line in a different way than a man. Like you're going to shake a man's hand if it's a male pastor as you leave. And you probably have people who want to hug you on the way out and people who maybe, I don't, I would hope not at our church, but I would imagine you've experienced inappropriate hugs. There, it's just another one of those things that in my experience, I would chalk up to this is something that male uh, pastors who identify as male or men in religious leadership don't have to think about. Uh, you know, I, in the before times, you're absolutely right. I am, I am cautious about how, how people approach me, how people look at me. 
Uh, there are times when I go places to make pastoral visitations where I make sure to wear uh, my clergy collar, which is like a people a lot of times will see like Catholic priests wear this. And it's mm-hmm. just a, a collar that sits high on my neck. Where there is no doubt. Sort of identifies me as a religious leader because I've served in communities, not this one, but I've served in other communities where it's questioned whether or not I'm allowed to be the pastor in the hospital room that gets to go over the quota of visitors or if I can have access to the, the prison or something like that. And there's just, there there are ways in which people interact differently. Mm-hmm. It was, it, it still amazes me that we're in the year 2022 and there are people for whom my existence is offensive. And just me, be, the fact that I am a female who presumes that God has called me to a position of leader of ministerial leadership is, is offensive to that. And that still, as, as recently as the last few months, it still blows my mind when I encounter someone like that. And what's so, to go back to the rules being prioritized over people, what's so fascinating to me is that part, that the, the, those people tend to not know me at all. They might know my no. name. They don't know who I am. They haven't interacted with me in a ministry setting. and They I, only know you through the lens of that rule. Right. And there's not a human within that rule, which Jesus always spoke to the humans within the law rather than the law yes. before the humans. Yeah. Well, and like there a little bit of schadenfreude is... I love nothing more than proving somebody wrong. Like, I love being able to find somebody who feels like just my existence is so, so offensive and just charm them. And making them Charm them and make them, you know, feel like they're being cared for and they're being loved. And, like, that, the way that they exist in the world and how they handle their beliefs is between them and God. Like... But you're going to humanize that rule for them. Right. You're going to put a face to it. Which anytime I feel like anytime someone has a rule that you're so, so, so um, attracted to or that, that is so important to you, I just want you to think about are you, what is it about that rule and how... How do the human how are humans around you affected by the way you live that rule out? So I will say we had this episode over a year ago now about Christian nationalism and I will I will be completely transparent I'm not in a a close relationship with someone for whom Christian nationalism is a really important belief and so it's very easy for me to generalize that and to make a rule out of that and to make it an us versus them exactly. which we don't want to do exactly exactly there's just so there's so many more facets to to god and there's so many more facets to following the pattern that jesus said or or seeking to be people of god in the world to this one you know paragraph in scripture that has done a lot of damage yeah and, you know, again, just to make this clear to the roadies, you know, you, I remember hearing a story from you about trying to contact a, another pastor in town mm. who was a man and who you had legitimate business with, like you needed to connect with him, would not take your call. 
would not, could not get past the woman who was answering the phone for him, would not call you back, would not provide a different way to connect, and just would not speak to you because I can only, this is projecting, but I can only imagine it probably had something to do with this idea of recognizing you Mm -hmm. would legitimize your calling and would legitimize your role, and he was not willing to do that. Just not to even have a conversation with you. Like, why is it so threatening? Why? As, so that that is that is the question. Why is it so threatening? I mean, there are there are places in the world where there are ministerial associations, where there are community groups of ministers. There's a community that I'm aware of where it's a relatively small community, and there are two ministerial organizations. One is made up entirely of white men. And the other organization, the second organization, was started by a group of black men who were pastors. And that second organization is the only place in that community where women in ministry are invited to take part in the congregation. Mm. The, the first group And that is of, not local to us now. Just right. You're not talking about just because we know some of our people we right. listen to this. But. but that is something that happened in this century yeah. that we're living in. So it's... It, you know, I, I guess to go back to this whole idea of like marginalization, there are still times when I'm just flabbergasted that this is still like this is really still an issue because yeah. because it's so foundational to who I am. And I want to leave room that there are places in the world where it's not an issue at all, where women have been in ministry for and, ages. And there and, are denominations in America where that happens, too. And I think a lot of churches primarily that are that are people of color um, are I've seen women be more readily accepted. That's a gross generalization overall, but that is something that there are many communities where a woman in leadership, no one would bat an eye. And there are many where they would within all races and all communities and that kind of thing. But just, you know, if we think back to the mental health road and the impact that this has, every moment you're on the phone having to convince someone you're actually a pastor, is taking away from other ministry that you could be doing is exhausting to you, you know, and and I know you're used to it. I know you've probably built up your armor pretty well, and all the women in ministry who are listening to this are probably nodding along and looking down at their own armor that they've built up Mm -hmm. around this, but it's got to be exhausting to continually be questioned, to continually have to defend yourself, to continue have to prove, yes, God loves me too. Yes, God called me too. <laughs> yes, I'm allowed to do right. this. Sure. And I, I would imagine that anyone who identifies as female who's in a profession or a vocation that's predominantly been held by men or people who identify as male for much of history is, is navigating that. And just, I mean, we're in a in a time right now where there's a lot of discussion, particularly here in America, about things like paid family leave and the the burden that's being placed on women and in the midst of this great resignation how much has been asked of women and Mm -hmm. so like there's the baseline of just it's I will say in general I think it is a little bit harder to be a woman in America than it is to be a man like (laughs) is that that's gonna make some people (laughs) mad I know I know but I just that's not I don't if that makes you mad, really? <laughs> okay, maybe, like, that really, like, 
Okay. But uh, there's, so all of the things that just go generally with, you know, being a woman. So the, the ways in which churches expect, um, you know, understand systems around maternity leave or the ways in which a church will call a young male pastor in the hopes that he and his wife are going to have lots of children and that's how they're going to grow their church because mm-hmm. they're going to get young people into the church. Mm-hmm. Um, the ways in which... Women are not given the same benefit of the doubt as men. So whether women are fact-checked or questioned, whether they are um, the the extra legwork and time that they have to do to measure their words or their clothes or or how they show up in the receiving line or um, heaven forbid a woman is dating in a position of pastoral leadership and how the congregation may or may not support that or feel like they have are entitled to that. Yeah. Uh, I think this is probably true for, for women in other professions, but I will say one of my big issues of mental health is I care a great deal about my privacy. And I am in a position of somewhat public I'm, I'm in a somewhat public position there are especially this podcast today right there are parts about my life that uh that the entire church every year gets to vote on my salary and that's true for male pastors as well that's 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 true for everyone in the presbyterian church um there are aspects of my life that were I in a different position would not be as public as they are now and you know I, and I, but I think your point is really important about what is happening, yes, can be seen in different careers across, you know, across all careers that generally it is harder for women to get positions of leadership and to be accepted when they do get those positions. And they typically have to work harder to get those positions. And the reason we have this podcast and what we are looking at is when you use God as a justification for that, when you weaponize Jesus to say, you're not allowed to do this. Yes. The ways that that can impact people's faith and well-being and understanding of God's love and their own calling and their just that's where it's and that's not to say it's not hard for women in corporate America. Of sure. course it is. Of course it is. And we're saying that same thing happens in the church, which is supposed to be the most accepting and love-filled and, you know, listen for God's call place. And instead, things are weaponized against women and yeah. used to, to to discount that. Right, right. And, and I think, of course, there are times when things are weaponized intentionally. And I think there's also a lot, a lot of, of innocence and ignorance. Um, if you are in a, a place where there are women in religious leadership... If you have expectations of those women, just give your do do yourself an own self check and ask yourself if you would have those same expectations if they identified as male. Yeah. So well, I have one really really funny story that I like to tell people early on uh, when I was a early on in ministry. Um, Andrew and I bought a house not far at all from the church where we were serving. And the front of the house, uh, there was like a big bay window and you could look into the kitchen. And maybe 
like within a week of us moving into this house, the very first house that we bought together, someone from the church stopped by and neither of us were there. We were both at work that day and a post-it note got left on the door that said, hi, Jill, looks like you need to do some dishes. <sighs> and I was like, oh, like, I just remember feeling like here it is. My life's on display. Like I just moved into this house. Of course, there were dirty dishes in the sink. Um, that wasn't addressed to my spouse. It wasn't even Jill and your husband. Right. It was, it was just like, and, and so that's, again, like that privacy, like, would you, at that point in time, I was serving in a church with multiple pastors. And I remember going to the two, two of the male pastors and asking if anything like that had ever happened. And I remember both of those male pastors just cackling with me at how inappropriate it was. And, and I want to say that, uh, I hope that no one is hearing from this that female pastors are all amazing and male pastors are all terrible because I have worked with and under and um, together with some incredible male pastors. And in there, I would not be where I am without their mentorship, without their leadership. No women, no, there are few women in ministry who would not be where we are without the work that men were willing to do to help pave the way for us. And so in the same way that I feel like we as white people are responsible for doing some of the work to, to undo these. Doing most of the work. Yeah. To, to, to undo these unjust systems and that systems of oppression that we created ourselves. Like there are, there are some incredible men in religious leadership who have done a lot of really hard work to help bring about some equity. And, and who are using their power. Yes. And that, for good. Using yes. the power for good. <laughs> you know, and that kind of brings us to, I mean, I think we'll still go back and talk about mental health and, and that kind of thing. But that really brings us to that, our section about who's driving and that how so much of this is about power and how the threat to power and letting someone else in, like why that is so threatening and trying to maintain power and why it's so important that women are not allowed this platform yeah. or not allowed this calling. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you who's driving. It's the patriarchy. <laughs> and you know, we that's what I have in my notes too. <laughs> we, we joke a lot about the patriarchy and I love being the card carrying feminist who insists that pockets hold the keys to the patriarchy. And that's why it's so hard for women to find dresses with pockets <laughs> in them or skirts with pockets in them or pants with pockets in them. Um, but you know, that, as, as much as we jest and joke, the patriarchy is a cultural system of understanding. It was very strongly understood, the male patriarchy in the Hebrew Bible, in, in the many, many, many hundreds of years and generations that make up the Hebrew Bible, as well as the New Testament. The patriarchy was at play. Jesus was born into a culture that had a patriarchy, that had a male-centered culture. And that culture is still at play even now, even in 2022. And so anytime there's questions to, is, is this who is in control or we're doing things the way they have always been done. Men have always been in power. And so challenging that is a threat. It's it's taking mm -hmm. away some of the power because there's always this understanding that power and control is like a pie. And so if you take a piece, that means there's less for everyone else. So there's mm -hmm. this really beautiful um, T-shirt, I think, that I saw or meme somewhere in, in the debate about uh, equal rights 
across um, racial identities that equal rights is not like pie. It doesn't mean giving equal rights for some means there's less for you. So I would say there's the same of that with power and control. Allowing women into leadership in religious settings does not mean that men can have less leadership. It just means that they're open to the possibility that a woman might have something to say that's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I know that's scary for some people, but I promise it's really not all bad. Well, and you know, so much of what we talk about around religious harm is about control. And someone trying to maintain control, maintain power. And so much of Jesus's work, I feel like, was about releasing control. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's all, in almost all of our episodes, I know I say it, that, that I don't, it's hard for me to understand people who say, put your trust in Jesus, release control, but then can't trust Jesus to call who Jesus wants to call. To ministry, you know, it's kind of, it's like, okay, yes, yes, trust Jesus, but nope, I got to hold on to this one. I've got to maintain control over this one. I can't just trust this person who thinks that Jesus is speaking to her as well. Yeah. So control is often, you know, that's, I think, where, again, people can wind up, can start out with really good intent and things can get really twisted or people can seek out religious systems because of the power it might give them and because of the control that it might give them. So, so yeah, so we've got some other categories. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on them, but like, you know, the um, U-turns, like what do we want to see instead? Like what would, mm-hmm. what would make life easier for women <laughs> who are considering going into the ministry or who are already in the ministry? What are the U-turns that... Sure. The thing that that comes to mind so much for me that's been such a thread tied throughout this whole episode thus far is the idea of rules over people and and giving yourself the opportunity to, to loosen your grip on that rule in order to get a better understanding of it and and how... I don't want you hearing me say, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's cut this part out of scripture. Like anybody who's going to tell someone who's serious about wrestling with this concept of women in ministry, don't let anyone tell you that you are not taking the authority of the Bible seriously. It is not because clearly you're taking it so seriously because you're wrestling with it and you're Mm -hmm. trying to understand it. So the U-turns that I want to see are more of that wrestling Mm -hmm. and trying to understand versus a generic, like that's the, what's the bumper sticker we always mention? The Bible said it, God said it, the Bible wrote it, and I believe it. And like, you know, wiping your hands clean. And pretending like, like it's just that clean and easy. Right. And I feel like in some places it is, and then you get somewhere else to where it's contradicting and you have to wrestle and that doesn't decrease the authority for me as a person of faith that just um means i have some responsibility in this and you know i think almost all of the things we talk about when we talk about rules and is that idea of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law you know the whole reason i remember my mom has said many times like the whole point of the ten commandments was to make life easier for you Life is better when you're not lying and when you're not murdering people and when you're honoring the people around you who are important to you. They weren't meant to be restrictive. They were actually meant to help you and guide you. And so, but when we twist them into something for power and control, then we worship the law versus the person who gave us the law. Yeah. Well, and I feel like 
The, the other thing that I want to say is that scripture is so rich and dense and that there are insights that we can glean from the text, even when we disagree with that text, even if we might dare to say that we think that text is wrong, we can still learn from it in the way that I, I've heard the expression, you can learn even more from a bad teacher than you can from a good teacher in sort of it, it, like there, there are ways in which we can take the things that we disagree with in scripture and learn from them and work out to take, to borrow a phrase from scripture, work out our own salvation and spirituality with the respect and authority that it's deserving of to, to really dig in and try and, and understand and to give yourself the benefit of doing that work and doing that time. And then to give others the opportunity to be to you a person and not a manifestation of a rule or a role to just be like, get to yeah. know Jill. Don't yeah. get to know the crazy feminist preacher of that hippie church. <laughs> Although I love that title and I wear it with badges of honor. Well, and I just, you know, I, I, I don't, know who's made it this far into this episode with us. But, you know, if you're wondering, am I following the letter of the law or the spirit of the law, pay attention to your reactions as you've listened to us. Have you listened to contradict? Have you been listen, listening just to find ways to prove us wrong? Have you been listening just to find ways to, to shake your head and be angry? Or have you been willing to say, I'm just going to see what they have to say, and I'm going to think about it, and wrestle with it, and I may still reject it. You may still think that we're wrong, and that's your right. You know, that's thank you for listening, and we would be willing to have conversations with you. But that that whole kind of like listen to talk versus listen to understand mm-hmm. um, is really really important there. Um, how about I'm kind of scared to say this because I think that we've been maybe road raging the whole time. <laughs> Um, but I would say for me, my road rage on this topic is just kind of the, who do you think you are to speak for God? Who do you think you are to tell someone what God is and is not saying to someone and for you to make that decision? Those are the thing that's kind of the main place that, that I would. And I know there are people who are saying, it's not me, it's to God. It's not me saying that. It's God saying that. Don't shoot the messenger. Um, bless (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 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 and it it still comes, yeah. So, yeah, we'll just leave it there. Sure. Any road rages you want to add? Oh well, I get fired up about plenty of things, and and many of the things that I get fired up about are times when I'm put in a position when I often come away saying, "If I was a man, that would not have happened." Mm-hmm. So when I speak up to, um, a matter in a in official capacity that has to do with. Robert's rules of order and I'm called out in front of an entire body versus, you know, other times when a a male has spoken up and has been politely excused or, you know, not contradicted and, uh, the, the ways in which, uh, the ways in which women are just sort of cast aside is, is frustrating and, and the ways in which there are double standards, triple standards, the, the expectations of women in, in ministry being different from, it's from, exhausting. from men. I have, I have colleagues who are in parenting roles who have had their congregations dictate to them 
how they should be parenting their children, that rather than their male spouse being the stay-at-home parent, of course, because they're the female parent, they need to reduce their hours or something, that the career track, that the pressure to be a parent and the expectation around being in a, a mothering role, that there, there's so much road rage around just expectations. And so my, my U-turn, my request is, is to, to, when you have expectations, to check yourself, right? Would I, would I expect the same thing if my pastor were a man. And then that phrase that I just used a few moments ago, that the, the idea that if you are interpreting scripture differently than the rest of the body, that you're told that you're not taking scripture seriously. Do not let anyone ever tell you that you are not taking the authority of the Bible seriously by questioning how it should be applied in this day and age and context. That'll preach. Yeah, it will. That will preach. <laughs> It will. It will. And so much, I, this is, this might be going from road rage into, into sort of a, a, a wider idea, but I, I am so privileged by the work that was done before me by, by men who were willing to use their privilege and their power to pave the way by women who struggled far more, were far more marginalized and encounter far more difficulties by my, by my colleagues and, and siblings in ministry who, who support me and encourage me and the opportunity that we have to be colleagues in ministry together. It's, it's, I'm so privileged to be a part of this demographic and, and we, we work together. Like there's, you, you mentioned, um, nope, I don't want to do that. Okay. Yeah. Do we feel ready to put it in park? Well, I feel like we could go on and talk about this. There's there's so many more stories that I could tell you if we wanted to just sit and have some gasping of of you know stupid stuff that mm-hmm. people have had to put up with. Um, but and I wonder if we could make this a series and maybe have some women on to share their stories. Yeah, yeah. There there are some really and truly credible incredible women in ministry, in positions of church leadership. There are female theologians out there who are doing hard work and, and putting public theology theology out there for discussion and debate. And it's a journey. I, I am, I, we, we often end our episodes or, or start to the beginning of closing our episodes with the invitation that we want to hear from our roadies and we want to interact with them. And I, of course, want to echo that. And I will say that this is a topic that I'm vulnerable to. And and I'm probably not going to respond in the most positive way if a roadie decides to say, you're wrong and this is why you're wrong and to throw some stuff back at me. Because this isn't, this is so personal to me and so important to me. And I, I just am so thankful and appreciative of the work that was done before me and the opportunity that I get to that I get to do this. Like I've I think I've said this before, I have my dream job. And there are not a lot of people who share my gender or my generation or my dem- demographic who get to say at this point in their lives that they're in their dream job. And there's so much that I love about my job, which is not to say that it's a walk in the park. Like I was going to say, and who have to deal with as much crap as you have to deal <laughs> with on the phone with someone questioning that you can't possibly the minister and other stuff and still call it your dream job. Sure. And it, and it, and I would do it 
I, I hope that I get to do this for a long time. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We've said before so many times that everyone is created in God's image and that God is so big and God is so powerful. And that I, I think if I were to put it in park, what I would say is that there's no way that we can presume to speak for God or put limits on what God, whom God speaks through, how God speaks and the ways in which God can work through anyone and everyone that God chooses. Yeah, that'll preach too. That'll <laughs> preach. If you were to put it in park, what would you say? You know, I think my putting it in park is is echoing that, but directing it towards you. Just my appreciation for <laughs> your willingness to to do this work and to overcome the barriers that might have been there and to um, allow yourself to be open, even though for a large chunk of your life you didn't have the representation and understand this path. When you saw it, you were willing to do what it took to get into it and probably had some people who tried to keep you out of it and that you persisted. And that's not to say that women who said, uh-uh, this isn't worth it, um, you know, that's a really valid choice too. Absolutely. Um, but I really appreciate that you've been willing to share that with us, you know, with me and with the rest of the roadies. And I just, I know that you're, you might have a little bit of a vulnerability hangover <laughs> after today and I'm going to let you edit this episode. So, um, so it'll be interesting, you know, to, to hear about what it's like for you to hear back some of this, but I just appreciate that you've been willing to, to open yourself up to, you've been willing to open up and let us hear some of your stories and to make this very personal because it is really personal. Sure. Um, and, you know, just I would also echo kind of the challenge that we do a lot that just because things have been away for a long time doesn't mean they have to stay that way. And for people who are really clinging to, nope, this is the way it's done, to engage in scripture and really kind of pull it apart and, and say, what does Jesus actually say about this? What does the Bible actually say about this? And, of course... You know, I imagine we have several women in ministry listening to this. And I just, as a counselor, want to validate to you that you are doing hard work. You are doing <laughs> such important work. But I just feel how exhausting it must be at times, how draining it must be at times. Please recognize that it's okay for you to ask for help. And I know that that's, you know, that, that lack of privilege is a barrier to asking for help because you feel like you got to be, do it better, be more perfect. Sure. And so, um, so good counselors are out there. Be willing to get support wherever you can. And um, just know that it's okay to be exhausted and tired and whatever you need to do around that sometimes too. Yes. I've had a series of letters that we've, I've been sharing with the congregation and many of them open with, there are so many reasons to be tired. Mm-hmm. There are so many reasons so to be many tired. Reasons. And, um, so I just want to echo my thanksgiving for some really incredible women in ministry that have made life um, so much more colorful and exciting for me in, in the way, in the work that they did. Um, and I could list so many names and, and some of them have um, joined the great cloud of witnesses and some of them are still doing amazing ministry and continually inspiring me. And just there, there's so much gratitude for, for people who have done the hard work to, to support women in ministry and to, to teach women in ministry. And uh, I hope 
very, very much hope that I have the opportunity to to support other women in ministry and in my career. As I well. think you are already doing that for sure. And I we hope that this episode will be a support to women in ministry as well. So, dear Rhody, speaking of that, we do hope if this has been meaningful to you or you know someone this might be helpful for that you will share this episode with other people. You can share the things that we post on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and we'll post all those links in the show notes. Um, We have a website. We'll post that in the show notes as well. Um, so anything else before we do our goodbyes, Jill? No, just thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this community. And thanks for coming on this particular episodic journey with us. And we look forward to interacting with you and welcome the opportunity to do so very soon. Yep. Thanks for listening and safe travels through all your sacred intersections throughout the week. Woo-hoo!